The scripture reading is a selection of readings from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Uh, Matt, are we good? Would you uh, pray with me? King Jesus, uh, we, we just sang about uh, your great love um, and how if the oceans were full of ink um, and every uh, stalk was a pen, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't write about your love enough. We would drain the oceans dry trying to write about your great love for us. And yet, we become numb to it, we become apathetic towards it, um, it loses its functional power in our day-to-day lives, and um, we're asking you now uh, to hear our cries. We sang about your love, and we were singing out and singing to our own hearts that you would cause your love to do what only your love can do, and that is to quiet us. Would you still us now, and may we be in this time um, slow to speak and quick to listen. My own heart uh, needs to be stilled now, and your great love can do that. And so make them not just words on a screen, but may we be uh, still long enough with you to experience the peace of your love this morning, we pray. And now as we come to your word, we pray for the one who you've called to teach your word, that you forgive him his sins this morning, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So welcome to Midtown Fellowship 12 South. Uh, My name is Elliot Cherry, I'm the pastor here, and uh, if you're just joining us or visiting, we um, are in a series this summer called The Way of Wisdom. We're We're spending some time in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes finding what these books not only have to say about biblical wisdom, but what they have to say about certain areas and certain topics in our life. And we're spending the summer not only asking the Lord to make us wise people, that's certainly one of the goals of biblical wisdom is that we would become wise, but we're also asking the Lord through his his word that he would not just make us wise, but that he would show us Jesus who the Bible says has become to us wisdom. He, he is the embodiment and the personification and the, uh, the manifestation of wisdom. And so wisdom is not so much a set of principles. Wisdom is not so much a set of how-tos uh, for life. It's, it's a person. That the Bible would say over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, meaning there's a relationship with the Lord that leads us to wisdom because he is wisdom. So we're looking at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and and finding what they have to say about topics, but we're also hoping to get a more complete picture of Jesus who has become to us wisdom and righteousness from God. So this morning, our topic at hand uh, in a broad sense is is emotions. 
Um, and, and we're not naive enough to think that one sermon on emotions could, could cover it all, although I could get close. No, but we also are going to not try to tackle all of our emotions. What we're going to talk about today and what the Bible has to say to our emotions by looking at one emotion specifically. We're going to spend the morning looking at what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, if, if you caught what John just read for us, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about anger which is a, 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 a deep topic, but if, you were, if you've been raised in the church, if, even if you haven't been raised in the church, your relationship with emotions or your relationship with anger is probably a complicated one. And so we wanna start this morning by asking, why would we even care about emotional maturity here? Why would we even care about what the Bible has to say to us in our emotions? Because there's a lot to say. And the first answer is this, is that if you're a human being in the room, which I think is most of you, you have emotions because you were made in the image of God. God has emotions. And because you were made in his image to reflect his image, you have emotions. And it gets lost and it gets muddied many times in, in, the, in the church these days that actually, instead of stuffing our emotions or instead of ignoring them or numbing them, actually health in our emotions is one of the gateways to displaying God's beauty to the world. It's not just that we want to have a better understanding and a better sense of wisdom with our emotions so that that would be the end goal. That's certainly part of it. We want to understand our emotions and develop a maturity with our emotions so that we can display the image of God to the world because God has very healthy emotions and he experiences all the emotions that we experience. And so what would it look like if we began to see our emotions as a way to paint a picture of God's beauty to the world? And generally, when it comes to our emotions or when it comes to anger, we've been taught or raised to think um, in, in kind of two different errors. On the path, on the road to healthy emotions, on the path, on the road to healthy anger, there's kind of two ditches, one on either side. The first side that many of us were raised in is that we were taught to try to avoid our emotions and act like they aren't there. And then the second pitfall, the other side of the healthy road, the other ditch is that we give ourselves over completely to our emotions and our emotions begin to rule us instead of us ruling them. So the question before us is this today, how do I mature in these emotions? How am I not dominated by them? How do I begin to see my emotions as gifts from the Lord in order to draw me to himself? How can we learn to have wisdom with our emotions instead of pretending like they're not there? And we're going to do that this morning by looking at the emotion of anger. And again, not that this covers all that there is to say about emotions or even anger, but getting a little bit of wisdom with our anger, like all of our emotions, would help us understand God's intention for our emotional selves. Anger, like all of our emotions, is a gift from the Lord. So first, what is anger? Anger is the indignation or the outrage that I have in response to when something that I love is being threatened. Anger is the indignation or the outrage I have in response to when something I love is being threatened. And so because of this, anger is almost always used to protect something, to defend something, to destroy something else, or to build something up. And my anger becomes this energy, this passion that actually allows for me to do some some work with it. And sometimes it can be destructive work, sometimes it can be defending work, sometimes it can be protective work or building up work. And so the question is, if that's what anger is, the indignation and the outrage that I have in response to when something I love is being threatened, the question is this, is anger good or bad? And here's how the Bible would answer that question, neither. 
Anger, like all of our emotions, is neutral. Anger, what we do with our anger, what our anger is rooted in, what we, what we understand as we begin to plumb the depths of our anger, that's when we begin to find out if our anger has wisdom or if it has folly with it. But anger in and of itself is not bad, which for many of us in the room is a complete shift in the way we were raised to think about it. Anger is bad. So when I begin to experience anger, I have to stuff it or pretend like it's not there because anger is bad. Anger is a bad emotion and we assign meaning and motive and value to the anger instead of looking at what's behind the anger. But one of the most repeated ideas in biblical wisdom, especially in Proverbs, John read four or five Proverbs. Uh, We could have read dozens more that all deal with the topic of anger. The Bible's wisdom would say, if you want to be on the road to wisdom and understanding about life and how the world works and how people work, you've got to understand anger. You've got to understand your own anger. You've got to understand the anger in other people and anger in the world. And part of the reason why we decided to kind of enter into the conversation of emotions by talking about anger is because Proverbs talks about it maybe more than any other emotion. It's, it's kind of this vast topic that's a gateway emotion into understanding the rest of our emotions. And like one scholar said this week, anger is perhaps the one emotion that is most like an addictive substance because typically anger can lead us to denial. So I meet with a lot of people and I'll sit down and I'll say how you're doing and many people give an emotional response. Like they describe how they're doing with the emotion that they're feeling in that day or on that, in that week. People say I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm exuberant. Uh, very rarely do I sit down with someone and they just say, you know what, I'm really angry. That's kind of my own self-assessment is that I'm experiencing a lot of anger. Anger tends to be the thing, be the emotion that we justify and ignore more than any of the others. We're fine saying we're afraid. We're fine saying we're sad. We're fine saying we're excited. We're very uh, hesitant to admit and acknowledge how angry we are. We say things like this, I'm not angry, I'm just sticking up for myself. Or we say things like, um, you know, I just, I just love justice. I just love right and wrong. I just, I just, I've got a kind of a clear black and white thing on how all the world should work. And so I, you know, I'm sorry if, if I came across so harsh, but I'm just kind of a, I'm just kind of a guy that just says things like it is. So if you can't deal with that, that's kind of on you. Cause I like to, I like to say it like it is. Never or rarely do we say, you know, I'm just angry. I'm angry about something. We do this, we, we deny this, we, we ignore it, we pretend like it's not there. I had a mentor several years ago tell me that I was angry, and <laughs> I got mad at him. Uh, <laughs> it's a true story. Because I th- and I think what happens is, is that people are afraid to admit um, how angry they are, partially because they, we, don't really know what to do with our anger. And if I were to acknowledge how angry I actually am and how angry I've been, I, I have this, this value and this, this, um, this morality associated with anger on its own, and so anger is bad, so I can't admit that I'm angry because that would admit that I'm not doing well. And so we avoid even talking about the anger, and we deny how angry we actually are. And so one path, one of the pitfalls, like we were saying, one of the ditches on the road to a healthy understanding of our emotions and anger is that many of us have been led to believe that the best way to handle our emotion of anger is to stuff it is to pretend like it's not there, to numb it. We ignore that it's actually there, and the Bible is trying to stop us from that pitfall. If you are someone in the room who says, I don't ever wanna talk about my anger, and I'm not someone who is angry, then we've got a problem. That's a, that's a ditch. But the other side of the ditch on the road to healthy anger is kind of the opposite extreme. 
What the modern kind of secular age has done, it's swung the pendulum in the complete opposite direction and it said, no, 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 don't ignore your emotions. Your emotions are very much a part of you and that's right, that's good, that's helpful. You've got to be in touch and acknowledge and admit what emotions you're experiencing. But what the modern secular age is, has done is it essentially has said that getting in touch with and expressing your emotions is the end in itself. That I just need to be aware of my emotions. I just need to be able to express my emotions because that's what health and my emotions looks like. And then in the name of authenticity, we use that excuse to just fully vent things like anger. Like I am angry, so you just have to deal with it because I'm angry. And this is me just being me. This is me just being true to myself. And so you don't have any ability to speak into what I'm expressing right now because this is just who I am right now. And so one pitfall is ignoring it, numbing it, acting like it's not there. The other pitfall is to think that simply acknowledging and admitting and being in touch with my emotions is the end goal. Because you've discovered your emotions, no one is allowed to say anything for the way that you speak to people or for your rage or for the way that you express wrath on people. And biblically, neither one of those pitfalls is an expression, is a healthy expression of emotions. Biblically, emotions were never meant to be an end of themselves. Biblically speaking, emotions were meant to be signposts and roadmap, on the roadmap to tell you how you're doing and where you need to go. Emotions don't tell you what's true. Emotions tell you what's true about what you're experiencing. Oh, this situation is causing me anger. Yes, you've got to know that this is causing you anger. You've got to know this is causing you sorrow. But you were never meant to stop there. Emotions were meant to lead us to a deeper end, namely to the Lord. We'll talk about that in a little bit. In Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, the whole Bible, but really Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, paint a different picture on the healthy road of emotions and of anger. According to biblical wisdom, the ideal, the, the, what wisdom in our anger looks like, is not denying it and not just stuffing it like a beach ball underneath the ocean when it's not going to stay there. It's not looking like, oh, I just, I, if I have anger, I have to act like it's not there. It's also not the other pitfall that says I have full freedom to fully ventilate and express the emotion that I'm experiencing right now. Biblically speaking, according to the Bible, the ideal when it comes to our anger is slow anger. It's a sin to never get angry. If you're someone who in the room says, I never get angry about anything, you're sinning. You've got a problem. There are lots of things you need to be angry about. But it's also a sin to use that as an excuse to, to excuse your anger and your wrath just because you're feeling it. According to the biblical wisdom that we just read, the ideal is slow anger. And many of us hear that and we go, wait, 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 that flips everything on its head for me because I was taught that anger is bad. But biblically speaking, anger is usually really good. A healthy understanding of anger understands anger's place and understands where it's supposed to be used and how it's supposed to be used. Anger, according to the Bible, in a healthy sense, means that we are slow to it. That's what a wise woman or wise man does. That's the ideal, is that we're slow to anger, not never angry. Slow meaning you're not hot-tempered or quick-tempered. Slow meaning the, the idea that should come to mind is like the pace of life in a small town. Like it's so slowed down, it's not chaotic. There's a lot of patience to go with and speak wisdom into your anger. There's time, there's thought, there's been some metabolizing of your anger, there's been some processing of your anger, there's been work done to slow the anger down, to acknowledge it, to understand the depths of it, and to apply wisdom to it. 
Slow to anger looks like you and I having some control in our anger rather than our anger controlling us. That's what slow to anger means. It means it's not on the throne of your heart. Anger is not driving the ship. You are with anger. And a slowness to anger is the biblical picture of wisdom. So if you want to know if you're someone that expresses and manifests um, slow anger, ask someone close to you. Ask them. Ask your spouse. Ask a roommate. Ask a sibling. Am I someone who's slow to anger? And if their immediate answer is not yes, then you know the answer. <laughs> because if they're hesitant to tell you, they're afraid which means you're not slow to it. And so ask someone, am I someone that you experience slow anger with? Am I slow to anger? Ask someone close to you. Did you hear, by the way, when I, when I say that, we're all probably gonna fail that, that little litmus test, just as a little preview for how that conversation is gonna go. But um, this, this is not an easy task. Did you hear in one of the Proverbs that John read, the one from Proverbs chapter 16, 32, it says this, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. Listen to what Proverbs are kind of like um, hard candy, like you shouldn't bite into it as soon as you get it in your mouth. You should let it ruminate and marinate for a little bit before you enjoy it. Think about this image that he just gave. Sit with this for just a second. It's better to be slow to anger than it is for someone who's able to take over a city, meaning this, it's easier to take over an enemy's city. It's easier to capture an opponent. It's easier to rule over a city and take it by force, Proverbs would say, than it is to learn slowness to anger. It's very difficult. It's not an easy task when it comes to biblical wisdom with our anger. It's easier to defeat an opponent, to overcome a city, to take over an enemy, than it is to learn wisdom and slowness with our anger. So how would we get there? How would we begin to not deny our anger nor excuse our wrath because that's just what we're feeling, but to learn the biblical path of wisdom in our anger that looks like slow anger? Because this is the biblical command. It's actually a command. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, be angry. Like in the imperative in the Greek original language, it's a command. Be angry, he says but don't sin. He's giving the command. There are lots of things, church, you need to be angry about. If you're not angry about them, you're sinning. There's also lots of places that we express our anger where sin begins to drive the boat. Sin begins to express itself through our anger. Be angry, but don't sin. That's the biblical, that's the New Testament version of slow to anger from Proverbs. So how would we get there? Well, the first step in understanding our anger and applying some wisdom to its depths is to understand what my response of anger is revealing about the depths of me. And here it is. Anger always exposes something that I love. If you want to know what you love, find the things that make you angry because your anger will lead you on a journey to what you love. Remember the definition of anger? Anger is the indignation and the outrage I have in response to when something I love is being threatened. You and I care about things. We have affection toward things. And when those things are threatened, if we love those things, we get angry. If you're a parent in the room and you've got a child that's being threatened, their safety or their security or their well-being is being threatened, you get angry because you love your child. 
and the child is being threatened, and so your anger is a natural response, but it's coming from a way deeper root system of love. Because something you love is being threatened, you should get anger. You should get angry. And our anger always exposes the things that we love. You have to be angry at the things that threaten the things you love, or else I would look at you and say, you don't love them. That if you're not, true love always gets angry. Jesus, the embodiment of love, God is love. Jesus is the flesh, the manifestation of true love, of ultimate eternal love. He was angry a lot. And it's not that God is never angry. It's that God understands that love drives anger. Jesus, the perfect lover, had perfect anger. We must be angry at the things that threaten to destroy the things that we love. I don't know if you saw this a few weeks ago, and I'm not making any political comment. Don't, don't at me with this, okay? Because it's just a powerful display, okay? John Stewart went before Congress a few weeks ago. John Stewart, the old Daily Show guy, went before Congress a few weeks ago to promote and push a bill that they were voting on. And the bill was to provide 9-11 first responders with health care and money to pay for their ongoing health needs from 9-11. And the room behind him is full of 9-11 first responders. And John Stewart, very well articulating his, his position, he's slamming the desk in front of him. He's crying. He's weeping. And he says, I'm angry about this. I'm angry that we're not taking care of these people. And then he says this. I don't know if John Stewart's a Christian. He Probably is. He talks like one a lot. Don't judge me on that, okay? I have no idea. But John Stewart says this. He says, I'm angry because I love these people. My anger right now is coming because I love these people behind me. John Stewart understands that anger comes from love. It was beautiful because we all get angry at the things that threaten the things that we love. That was a beautiful example. How about a not so beautiful example? Last night, it's 10 o'clock, and my son has gotten out of bed for the hundredth time. And he needed something from me. He needed me to come lay with him again. He needed some more water. He needed to go potty. He needed to tell me his hopes and dreams. And he, he, he's, he gets up and he's interrupting something. What's he interrupting at that point? My sanity. Guess what? I love my sanity. I love my peace. And now my son is threatening that. So guess what happened? Guess what I could feel going on? Anger. Now, I didn't lash out on him or anything, I, but here's, what, here's what's going on. In that moment, I'm realizing something that I love is being threatened, my peace at night. And now something is threatening that. And so my anger is not an anger just simply at him. It's an anger because something I love is being threatened because anger always comes from love. Anger is rooted in love, which leads us to the most painful part of this discussion on anger. Instead of simply asking yourself, if you're trying to go on the journey of a healthy understanding of your emotions or your anger, you might want to ask or make a list of what are the things that I get angry at? That would be a helpful place to start. But the deeper, more exposing questions is not what things do I, do I get angry at? This is the scariest question. What things do I love? If you want to understand your anger, you have to get to the root of what you love. Because at any given moment of any given day, we talked about this a little bit last week, but at any given moment of any given day, you are in love with something. You're in love with peace. You're in love with your comfort. You're in love with your control. You're in love with your identity. You're in love with your reputation. You're in love with the way you like thinking about yourself. And in connection with all of those loves, at any moment of any day, in connection with any of those loves, those loves could be threatened at any point. 
And in response to those threats, we get angry. Here's a little bit more personal one. I hate being misunderstood. I also hate being misrepresented. That if I or someone is telling a story about me and, and I, I begin to feel like I'm not being represented well or I'm certainly not being understood well by the opposing party or by the other party who's listening to the story, I begin to want to make sure that my motives were very clear, my intentions were very clear, and why I did certain things in the story took place. And so I begin to get riled up that I don't really feel like this person who's hearing about me is thinking about me the way that I want them to be thinking about me. They're not understanding me. They don't, they're not getting me. And so from time to time, people that aren't viewing me the right way, that I want them to view me, um, in some given scenario, I get misquoted. My side of the story isn't given the full picture. I can't find the right words to communicate what I'm trying to say. And all this is going on in my head. All this self-talk is going on in my head. And I begin to realize something. If this person leaves this interaction, they're going to think something about me. They're going to make a declaration about me and about my identity. And I love my identity. I love the reputation that I've built. And so in real time, like in instant moments that build on each other, I begin to get angry, not because I love the intimacy of this relationship, but because I will make sure that they keep the identity of me that I love having of me. So I get angry at them. My tone gets raised. I begin to... um, uh, get, get flustered and I begin to get scattered. I begin to raise my voice a little bit. I begin to judge them in my heart. I begin to get bitter towards them. All this is an anger. But please understand, that anger is coming because I love something and the thing that I love is being threatened. Here's maybe the best litmus test for where I get angry or how you'll know if I'm angry. I get defensive. That when you and I enter the courtroom and we start defending things and presenting evidence, demanding that we be seen a certain way or understood a certain way, we're fighting for an identity in a courtroom. And our defensiveness is coming from an anger that's brewing that you're not keeping my identity of me that I like having of me, so my anger looks like turning into a lawyer. And I begin trying to prove myself and justify myself so that my identity stays intact. But please, please don't miss this. All of the anger, all of the defensiveness is coming out of me loving an identity and loving a reputation that I've worked very hard to build. And now in this moment, at least in my head, in this moment, that's being threatened. And so I'll start fighting for that. I'll start getting angry for that. But please do not mistake this. It's the love of something that's driving the anger. So, do you know what you love? Let me ask it this way. Do you have rightly ordered loves? The way that the Bible would rank your loves and say, this is the order that your loves and the things that you love are supposed to fall in. It's not wrong to love a lot of the things that you and I love, but when we love them out of order, when we disorder our loves, it would follow then that if we have disordered loves, we will be angry at the wrong things and in unhealthy ways. It's only when our loves are rightly ordered that we will begin to have a healthy understanding of our anger. When I have disordered loves, I have unhealthy, impatient anger. And in my sin and in my selfishness, love of self is usually at the top of the list, and that drives an anger that is all about defending and protecting and building up me. And so my anger is generally an expression of love of self, not in the healthy way. But what if we loved the right things? What if if our loves became rightly ordered from time to time? Can you imagine, 
Can you imagine if you had rightly ordered loves, how you would begin to use your anger for good? Can you begin to imagine, can you, can you picture using your anger like a master surgeon to destroy the things that need to be destroyed and to protect the things that need to be protected and to defend and build up the things that need to be? That's only gonna come when loves are rightly ordered, not when you get a handle on your anger. You have to love the right things which will drive a healthy sense of anger. Look, you may be someone who your whole life, people have told you you've got a short temper, you've got an anger problem, and God is not looking at you to saying today that he shames your anger. He loves your anger. What he's after is not your anger. He's after your loves. Because if the loves can be rightly ordered, guess what will happen to the anger that is the fruit of those loves? They will be rightly used. Are you angry? Great. That anger can be used to do a lot of good in the world. That anger can be used to destroy things that need to be destroyed in the world. That anger can be used to hate the things that God hates in the world. That anger can be used to defend and protect the helpless and the weak like God loves to do. And so there's a place for your anger. It's not, the Bible would never tell you to get rid of your anger. What the Bible's after is rightly ordering your loves because when your loves are rightly ordered, your anger will be a fruitful, slow, and patient, God-like anger. We will be slow to it, patient in it. We will be ruled by the anger. We will not be ruled by the anger. We will be ruling our anger through our rightly ordered loves. And so here's the, here's the biblical path to rightly ordering our love and therefore rightly ordering our anger. Here, here's the biblical path of a healthy wisdom understanding of my anger and my loves is that when we experience anger, we have to bring that anger to the Lord before we do anything else with it. I know that sounds trite, I know that sounds like I'm speaking Christianese, and on some levels I am, because here's how the, here's how the psalmist, here's how Jesus, here's how anybody who had a healthy understanding of anger, here's what they did. They acknowledged and did not deny their anger, but before they did just about anything with it, they took it to the Lord. But here's what happens when we take it to the Lord. Here's how taking our anger to the Lord before we act on it slows us down. Because when I bring my anger to the Lord, I begin to experience the slow anger of the Lord to me. In our call to worship just a little bit ago, that Andrew called us into worshiping God this morning is from Psalm 145. And this phrase is repeated dozens of times in the Old Testament. It said that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It doesn't say the Lord is gracious and merciful and has no anger. It says the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And here's what's happened in the post-enlightenment postmodern world that we all live in and are products of. Modernity wants to eliminate the anger of God in the name of elevating the love of God. That what the, what the modern religious mind thinks is that I don't believe in a God of anger because that's antiquated, that's ancient world, that's what the old people believe, but they weren't as smart or as enlightened as we were. And so what the God that I like to believe in has no anger. The God that I like to believe in only has love. And here's what the Bible would say. If you remove the anger of God from his attributes, you will remove his love. That what the modern religious mind has done in, a, in an attempt to elevate the love of God by removing his anger, they've actually shrunk the love of God. If God's not angry, he's not loving. 
Because anger is always driven by love. God's anger is a result of his infinite love. Anger is always rooted in love. So if God has no anger, then he actually has no love. So if you'll go with me for a minute and just acquiesce to what the Bible says about God's attributes, that it's not an ancient text that's irrelevant and old world and now we're too smart for it, that actually it's teaching us the connection between love and anger. Think about the Bible, at least give the Bible credence for the next five minutes as we look at what has God done? How did God use his anger that was birthed in love? Well, God, because of his infinite love, also has an infinite anger. And what is his anger directed at? His anger is directed at the thing that threatens the thing he loves most. And the thing, according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the thing that God loves the most is not just his creation, it's his created image bearers, his people. And so the thing that God loves the most, Genesis chapter 3 would say, has been decimated by sin. So what is God angry at? What does God hate more than anything? Out of his love for his people, what does he hate more than anything? He hates sin. He's angry. He's got wrath for sin. Not arbitrarily, but out of his love, he has an anger at the thing that's threatening the thing that he loves. And so if you keep going down that path, we have a, we have a conundrum. There, there's going to be a collision here. We've got a problem because yes, God loves his image bearers more than anything, so he hates the sin that seeks to destroy it, but guess what? If God's gonna hate and be angry at sin, we're gonna have to be the objects of that anger, because sin lives in here. So God's got this conundrum. He hates the thing that seeks to destroy the thing he loves, but the thing that he hates also lives in the thing that he loves. So there's this tension, there's this problem and let's see what God does with his anger driven by his love. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 59 from the Old Testament says about this tension that God has between his holy and righteous anger, trying to reconcile that with the object that he loves the most. Isaiah 59 says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, meaning this, the world's a mess. Justice is turned back. There's no justice in the world, and righteousness has turned back. There's nobody living righteously. It's a mess. It's painful. It's broken, and it's shattered. And then it says, when the Lord saw it, it displeased him that there was no justice and righteousness in the world. Translation, God was angry that there was injustice. God was angry that there was sin in the world. God was angry that there was no righteousness in the world. And now he's trying to express to us, the author of Isaiah is, God's holy anger. And then it goes on, it says this, he saw that there was no man and wondered, is there anyone to intercede? What he's saying is, is God has an anger at sin and it's justified. And that anger at sin is driven by his love of his creation. But now the object of that anger is also going to be the thing that he loved. And so God has this tension. His love and his anger have to be reconciled somehow. So listen to the very next sentence. This tension is jumping off the page in Isaiah 59. And it says this, Then his own arm brought him salvation. Meaning this, do you know what God did with the tension of the fact that he loved his people so much he had to hate the sin that sought to destroy them, but that also means he would have to be angry at them? Do you know what he did with that? Do you know what he did with his anger? It says there was no one to intercede for them, so his own arm, his own self interceded for them. In the person and in the death of Jesus, 
God bore all of his anger himself. He spent all of his righteous wrath on himself. He interceded for the ones that were unjust, that were unrighteous. The ones that he loved, he bore the wrath for them so that they wouldn't have to. He destroyed himself instead of destroying us. He spent all of his anger. He didn't stuff it and act like it wasn't there. He didn't ignore it and pretend like he didn't have any. He used it out of his love for the sake of the thing that he loved. He died for them. His anger, which was coming from his love, caused him to intercede and fight for and chase down and track down and never give up on the object of his love. He sacrificed himself for them. He paid the cost of the anger. He bore it and absorbed it himself. And so here's, here, that, that is the image of slow to anger. That's what it means to be slow to anger. So how do we begin to not just learn from that, but be changed by that? Here's what it means. When I bring my anger underneath that, when I bring my anger to that God, I begin to see I deserved his wrath, but instead of him ignoring it or numbing it or getting rid of it, he spent it on himself for the sake of peace here. He spent his anger on himself. He bore the weight and the cost of it himself so that I didn't have to be the object of his wrath. And so when I leave that God, even if it's like in the middle of an argument with your spouse, if you're bringing your anger to God in the middle of that, you can't help but hold on to your anger if you need to and not have it be mingled with mercy and compassion because that's what you've been shown. So it's impossible to stay and keep them the object of your wrath when you know you should have been the object of his wrath, but he mingled it with his mercy so that you wouldn't have to bear it. That's what slow anger looks like. It looks like saying that you're willing to pay the cost necessary yourself for the sake of the one you love. It looks like saying this anger's gotta go somewhere and I can go slam a bunch of glass plates against a wall or I can bear it and absorb it and eat it myself for the sake of my love. And you, might, you will need to still be angry about some things. You should be angry about some things. But to not sin with that looks like you being willing to sacrifice yourself in the middle of that anger and not make someone else pay the cost of your wrath. Your willingness, my willingness to absorb the anger that maybe even needs to be there and not dismiss it or numb it or pretend like it's not there, your willingness to pay the cost for the sake of the relationship is what slow anger looks like. I'm not saying you can never get mad at somebody. I'm not saying you'll never be mad at anything again. And if you always bring your anger to the Lord, you'll never express anger in the world. What I'm saying is, is that a slowness to anger, a patience in your anger looks a lot like God's anger. And so what the, the, one of the greatest litmus tests for that is how willing are you to eat the cost of your own anger yourself instead of making someone else pay for it? Because that's what God did. He, he, he had the full weight of his anger poured out. He just didn't pour it on you. He poured it on Jesus so that you guys could be at peace. And so when we bring our anger underneath the rule of this king, when we bring our anger underneath the rule of this gospel, my anger gets rightly placed, my anger gets rightly tempered because my loves begin to get reordered. You can't experience the abounding mercy and slow to angerness of God and not be changed by it. 
And you will begin to love God more than you love any other things like your reputation and your identity. And when you love God first, your anger will be rightly placed. Your anger will be slow. Your anger will have patience with it. Your anger will be understood by you. And you will have an anger that doesn't seek revenge or retribution. You will have an anger that seeks to build and restore, even if it's at great cost to yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, we are, um, we are quick-tempered. Uh, we give full vent to our spirit. We justify our anger. We deny it. And really what we need to, to still us and to calm us in that is by experiencing what your anger did for us. Your love produced anger interceded for us. Your love produced anger substituted someone for us. Your love produced anger laid down a life for us. Would you cause that to stir our affections for you that we might rightly order our loves and therefore have a slow anger that looks like our Father's? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.